You are listening to Packers Talk Radio Network. PackersTalk.com. You're listening to No Huddle Radio on the Packers Talk Radio Network, your home for in-depth and thoughtful Packers analysis. I'm joined by my friend Gil Martin, and my name is J.J. Leahy. Gil's a writer for thesportsdaily.com and Cheesehead TV, and in addition to this podcast, I host the Daily Cheese Green Bay Packers News Update. We're here to talk Packers because we're all here for one thing, and that's a love for Green Bay football. Guiding you through the offseason from free agency to the draft and all the way to OTAs, we got you covered. Do you have a question you'd like answered on the show? Hit us up on Twitter at JJ Leahy or at Gil Packers, or you can email us at asknohuddle at gmail.com. Well, Gil, free agency is edging closer, and a lot of teams are shedding players to get under the cap, to uh, make room to sign free agents. And, well, the Packers have started making their own moves. Of course, they were able to work out a restructure of David Bakhtiari's contract to free up some money. And they also cut ties with Rick Wagner and Christian Kirksey. And, of course, you know, Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams are two names. You know, these guys are not under contract. They quite possibly won't be back this year. In fact, probably won't be back. And uh, that leaves a big question here about what do we do at the running back position? Obviously, very important in a Matt LaFleur offense. We do have A.J. Dillon, last year's second-round pick, who has looked very good in the limited sample we have seen him in. What do you think our running back room is going to look like this year? I think it's going to look very different. Uh, I personally hate to see... Uh, Aaron Jones and Jamal Williams leave. They've both been great Packers, one a fourth round pick, one a fifth. Uh, certainly, you know, blossomed and they're good team guys, good in the community, good in the locker room and good on the field. But the thing is that running backs are not valued in the modern NFL the way they were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And I think we're going to have A.J. Dillon. We may bring in a, a role player kind of veteran. Uh, someone who can uh, compliment Dylan, maybe be more of a receiver out of the backfield. And I wouldn't be surprised if Green Bay also drafts another running back on day three of the draft to add to the running back room as well. And yeah, what about a guy like James White? He's been tossed around quite a bit as a name that Packers might be interested in signing. He's a free agent. Last year with the Patriots, he his base salary was $3 million. He had another... Uh, million dollars in a signing bonus. His total cap hit was only $4 million. There's the question of, is he looking for more money than that? Uh, but, you know, he might not. And and James White is a guy, by the way, whose receiving grade as a running back is off the charts. He is uh, one of the best pure receivers you will find anywhere in the league at the running back position. Yeah, I, I think he'd be a very good fit under the circumstances. And look, he... He brings big game experience. He's won some Super Bowls with New England, obviously, and he has been a key component of that Patriots short passing offense that Tom Brady used so well uh, when that team was winning championships. So I, I think that he would be a good fit to complement A.J. Dillon. Uh, the only question I would have is, how much of a role would he have in the actual running game? You don't want to be 
in a Matt LaFleur offense, which is based on the idea of running very different plays out of identical formations, where if you know A.J. Dillon is in there, they're more likely to run. If you know uh, that he's out of there and White is in there, they're more than likely to pass. That takes that element away. So that would be my only question concerning him if they sign him. That's a great point, Gil. James White would certainly need to be used similarly to how Aaron Jones was, where usually when he was out catching passes, it's a bit of a surprise, and you thought he was going to run because he does run so much. James, I you know, I think part of the issue is you are looking for that different type of complementary back to A.J. Dillon. You know, you want a, an Aaron Jones replacement, just, you know, one who's affordable because Aaron Jones certainly will not be. The other question would be, is is that player already on our roster? We have Dexter Williams, Mike Weber, and Patrick Taylor are all still under contract. I think there's something with Patrick Taylor's contract. You know, he's maybe like a restricted free agent, something like that. But, you know, all these guys would be really cheap to bring back. So that's not any any of the concern right there. You and I definitely have talked about Dexter Williams before. He's a guy we both like, me particularly. Obviously, massive questions about his ability to play. Uh, you know, his his pass protection has been a massive issue for quite a while. Is Dexter, Mike, or Patrick somebody that we might see, you know, actually make the 53? It's possible, but the key for that, you, you mentioned the key for Dexter Williams. He's got to be able to pass block and catch passes out of the backfield. Uh, any one of those three guys have to take a massive jump forward if they're going to be a consistent and serious contributor in 2021. They may make the roster. They may be special teams guys. They may uh, they may be depth guys. But if they're going to contribute, there's got to be a big jump in performance from what they have been up until now uh, going into next season. There's one more guy that we never talk about, uh, but he's a really good runner and he would be very cheap. What's your take on Tyler Irvin? Uh, I'd welcome him back if he wants to come back. Uh, but you're not going to break the bank for him. And he certainly didn't provide as much dynamic return action in 2020 as he did in 2019. Now, he was battling a lot of injuries. Uh, I'd welcome him back. It's just a question of uh, whether or not he's healthy and how much he's going to add to the team. Well, I'm thinking about offensively rather than bringing him back in his special teams role. Is is Tyler Irvin a guy that we could look to and say, you know, he has a lot of talent and, and similar skill set to Aaron Jones? Could he be our Aaron Jones replacement? I, I don't think so. I, I think, if anything, he's a gadget player, a third down back, a guy who'll run the occasional jet sweep, little screen or swing passes out of the backfield to get him the ball into space. But He's not carrying the ball on offense more than five times a game, I don't think. And uh, I don't think he really has the size and the consistency necessary to replace Aaron Jones. I'd love it if he proved me wrong. I just don't think he's he's got that role. Uh, he, he's best fitted for it. Now, down in Tennessee, because you know they have Derrick Henry, who clearly is what A.J. Dillon is supposed to become. Seems like uh, Deontay Foreman kind of filled that role for them in 2020, you know, but he didn't take a lot of snaps there. It pretty much was just the Derrick Henry show. So the other 
thing to consider is, you know, what if we don't have another back who, you know, is sharing the backfield like uh, Aaron and Jamal have? What if you just worry more about, you know, replacement depth should something happen to A.J. Dillon in the form of an injury? See, the problem is right now that would be a nightmare scenario because the the Packers don't have anyone else who could really be that that uh, workhorse kind of a back uh, who's even going to get, let's say, 60 percent of the carries. I'm concerned about that. And that's why I think we're going with a draft pick and a free agent. And, yeah, he might be a good fit to fit that role. He, he might be a good depth piece to add again if the price is right. I think at this point, my preference here would be to look for a guy like James White, and maybe there isn't anybody else out there who's like him. Maybe it just is James White that you have to be considering. And you weigh bringing him in versus bringing back Jamal Williams, because I think you would see similar dollar amounts there. And Jamal Williams um, has not historically graded out as well as um, James White as a receiver. Jamal, he did pretty decent in certain stretches in 2019 as a receiver, but in 2020, his 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 receiving ability was uh, not adequate. That is an area where James White is a clear, to me, upgrade over Jamal. As a pure runner, Jamal, I think, is is a little bit better than James White. If you had to pick one, and let's just say that the best price you could get for either of them was identical, and that and that wasn't the factor, would you rather take Jamal or James White? I would rather keep Jamal, all things being equal. He's younger. I think that he gives you that added dimension that he could run the ball, and he could run the ball you know, 15, 20 times a game if needed. He is not as dynamic, certainly, as Aaron Jones or even as dynamic as a receiver in space as White would be. But I think that as an overall running back, he adds more and he's popular in the locker room. He's a he's a good teammate, knows the system. All things being equal, uh, I, I would stick with Jamal. You make a good, good point about the age because Jamal is about four years younger than James White. You do have to wonder if the time has kind of run out on James White as a, you know, really um, valuable running back. And, you know, certainly his rushing PFF grade has kind of reflected that. My concern there, and, and I'm not, you know, asking you to come up with the answer here, but my concern here is that Jamal Williams, to me, is a very similar style of back to A.J. Dillon. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you look at you look at the running backs we had on the roster in 2020, you had Aaron Jones was that, you know, scat back tailback. And then you had, you know, two really good, uh, you know, power run uh, running backs in Jamal and AJ, who you wouldn't really ever have a situation where you'd want both of them on the field at the same time. It was kind of an either or. So to me, maybe, Maybe we really do need to look at the draft uh, for for someone who can fill that that versatile uh, tailback who is also a really good receiver um, and 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 use the use the draft uh, as opposed to free agency or looking inwardly. And I remember at the beginning of the 2019 season when Lafleur first came in, Gutekunst brought in 
a truckload of running backs. We had it was like a carousel. Like every three days, oh, you know, these two running backs got cut. These two running backs got brought in. They were looking for something. And ultimately, they never found it. They just rolled with Jamal and Aaron Jones, who were already on the roster, having been drafted um, by Ted Thompson. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Goody, you know, churn the bottom of the roster there with a bunch of free agent acquisitions, just street guys like he did in 2019. And just keep digging and looking for, okay, somebody out there can provide what we need. Yeah. And, and it, you know, unfortunately, uh, in my mind anyway, running backs are viewed as almost interchangeable parts in a lot of ways. So I think that what Goody's going to do is look to, f- to fill specific roles, whether it's the Tyler Irvin, you know, out of the backfield, third down back kind of a role or the, you know, you have A.J. Dillon to be that big bruising inside runner. You want that home run threat to replace Aaron Jones, assuming that Aaron Jones is not back in 2021. So I, I, I think that you add a free agent, you add someone on day three of the draft, and then you sign some uh, undrafted free agents or or bring in some unsigned players and just try to try to find a diamond in the rough. I think that is going to be part of the strategy. For me, I think I'm not interested in bringing Aaron Jones back. He is slated to be receiving offers for, you know, around 12 to 15 million dollars according to some reports. I'm not interested in spending that kind of money for any running back, but also you know, Aaron Jones played fine in 2020. He was not the same player I don't think as he was in 2019. And you could chalk that up to maybe the league figuring him out a bit, you know, just being better prepared for him. I don't know. He continues to miss time every year. Uh, he's he's just a small guy. He's He gets hurt. And, you know, he's, what, 26, 27? And, and 26 years old really is right about when that kind of turning point is for running backs. The position just takes so much abuse, and their body starts to wear down a bit around – 26 unless you're frank gore (laughs) you're not playing meaningful running back snaps when you're 32 i'm not interested in signing aaron jones to a a longer term deal and the you know the one thing i would consider is if he was willing to do a one or two year deal but let me tell you if his agent let him sign a one to two year deal that's a terrible agent because that's a, a very bad contract for a running back of his age who probably is not going to be, um, you know, having the same kind of production in two years as he is right now. No, th- this is his one chance to cash in big and there's no way. And he switched agents even, uh, you know, during the season. So he's looking to cash in and, and I can't blame him. This is his one big opportunity to really set himself up for life and and his family as well. And uh, hopefully for him, he can get paid and, and, and get that security. But I, I just don't see how uh, the Packers could fit him in under the cap and, and keep him around as much as I think he's been a great Green Bay Packer during his stay here. Well, no question this is going to be a big priority for Gutekunst and the floor over this offseason, answering the question of what do we do at running back because the run game is crucial to making Matt LaFleur's offense work. Is A.J. Dillon enough to carry the Packers' run game on his own? Maybe. 
not sure. Let's we'll see. And uh, I, I do have confidence that Goody and LaFleur are going to make the right decision here. And they will not roll in without a player that they believe can carry them. But it is time for us to look to our Packers year in review series. We're going to pick up where we left off, starting with one of the weirder games of the year. And that would be in week 10. This was our ninth game of the season, the Jacksonville Jaguars. And Gil, this was a game. I missed the first half of it. I was out doing some stuff. Didn't get to see it. And when I got home and was able to put the game on, I was shocked. <laughs> this is not ex- not what I was expecting to walk into. It was the definition, I think, of winning ugly. But they were able to uh, get the win and and get out of you know get out of dodge, so to speak. Even though you know this was a home game, but uh, you know Jake Luton was the quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars and and the Packers defense did a good enough job of limiting him but the offense just wasn't clicking in this game and you know you did have the long bomb to MVS 78 yards that put the pack on top 7 to 3 but then special teams oh that punt return for a touchdown Green Bay had a struggle they were behind 20 to 17 early in the fourth quarter But then Rodgers finds Adams with about nine minutes left for the game-winning six-yard touchdown pass. It was like Green Bay knew they had to do, they they did just enough to do the minimum to get the win, and they walked away. I think the Texans are the only team out of the whole division that you could look at and say, yeah, I am not surprised by how that game went. The Jaguars just came out of nowhere, and I I think this, in many ways, felt like Minnesota Vikings Part 3. You know, looking back at, it had been three weeks ago that we had had our most recent loss. That was our second game against the Vikings. The wind was a big factor. Defense did not show up. Special teams was a train wreck, and we couldn't get the run game going. And because of all that you saw a lifeless Packers team out there against the Vikings and that same lifeless team trotted out against the Jaguars. You know, in many ways it looked like what had happened against Tampa, except against a bad team instead of a good team. And here's the interesting thing. So we, we beat the Jaguars lost the following week to the Colts. And this was clearly during a major slump for the Packers. Rodgers spoke after the Colts game about how there was a different energy here. And he said that that week was the first time that they had practiced like a good team. And that practice, of course, was following this Jaguars stinker of a game. Now, I'm not mad that we went up against the Colts and couldn't pull one out. Somebody out there whose name I forgot to write down, and I apologize to them, commented that the locker room after the Jaguars game, locker room after the Colts game, it felt like if you hadn't watched the games, you would have thought they beat the Colts and lost to the Jaguars. There's no question. This team took the game against the Jaguars in which they massively underperformed looks terrible barely squeaked out a win 
they took that to heart and they looked in the mirror and said, we are better than this. This is unacceptable. We are going to fix it. I think the Jaguars game in many ways was one of the more important ones of the year because this was one of those times that I think the Packers really used to look inwardly and reframe how they approach some of these games because they clearly just did not show up against the Jaguars. This was another game like Tampa Bay, like San Francisco, like the Chargers, where they just kind of, you know, sauntered into town, didn't really prepare, and it showed. And I think getting embarrassed on TV by the Jacksonville Jaguars, a terrible team who are going to get the number one draft pick this year. I think that that really hit home. And one last point before I turn it over to you. The game that sealed the end of the Mike McCarthy, his name didn't sound right in my head, (laughs) the Mike McCarthy era was the loss to the Arizona Cardinals, who were the number one overall draft pick that year. This was a, this was a scenario where the team saw what coasting will get you. And I think that they use this as an opportunity similar to how Mark Murphy used that game uh, three years ago as an opportunity to just overhaul the whole team. I think that the players use this as an opportunity to overhaul their attitude. We saw a very different team the whole rest of the year after this game. I don't. I think that if they hadn't had this stinker against the Jaguars, there's a very good chance that the end of the season would not have been memorable, would not have been anything special, would not have been the performance that it was. No doubt that the the near loss to Jacksonville put a little fear in the Packers, even though maybe the next game it didn't quite show as quickly as we would have liked. Yeah, that's true. The, the Colts game, I think one of the interesting things uh, to me about the Colts game is that the narrative what ended up being about the defense. That surprised me. It really surprised me because obviously you have the drama with uh, the MVS fumble, which was his first career fumble and fans sending him death threats and, and all the garbage that happened then. But after people got over that, the narrative was about the defense. And that was really surprising to me. It was one of the highest, actually it was the highest number of points that the defense allowed all year, but you kind of couldn't blame them. How many times was Indianapolis given the ball in their own territory over and over and over again. You had, this was the worst special teams performance in my opinion of the entire year, multiple times. Aaron Rodgers is backed up almost into his own end zone for one of those. He certainly was in his own end zone and had to launch the ball deep down the field. And Devante had to be Superman and make one of the most miraculous catches of all time. Yep. Oh my gosh, I got chills just thinking about that. <laughs> this was this was the most complete special teams collapse all year. And the and the offense had so many opportunities. They only put up 3 points in the entire second half and it was in the last 
like two minutes of the game or of, of regulation. Yeah. I just, I, I couldn't bring myself to be even frustrated with the defense. They, they worked their butts off out there and got no help from anybody else. This was a tough loss to swallow. You're up 28, 14 at halftime. Everyone was talking coming into this game about how good the Colts defense was and green Bay lit them up in the first half. And then it all fell apart. You had, uh, an interception by Rodgers, a fumble by Rodgers. You talked about the MVS fumble. The special teams breakdowns were just awful. And this team, you know, even the way they handled the clock at the end of the game where they tied it with three seconds left on a field goal by Mason Crosby, but if they would have had one more timeout, would have had one more play, they would have at least had a chance to try to win it in regulation They couldn't manage the clock exactly the way they wanted to, and they have to kick the field goal. They go to overtime, and they lose it after the MVS fumble. So this this was just, to me, uh, this and the Minnesota game were the two games that just were, uh, as a fan, very, very tough to swallow. And thankfully, the Packers reacted well to this game because after this, it was a different kind of a football team on the field. Absolutely, it was. This was a tale of two halves. It was a tale of two halves in the game and of the season. We're just past the midway point here. Rodgers was not, at least you know, publicly, was not frustrated with this loss. Um, he immediately started talking about the attitude in the locker room, the attitude in practice. And he kind of gave a run the table type of speech. And you and I talked about it at the time. We don't need to rehash that again. But this was a situation where he could see clearly that the team was different. And then just a couple days later, he went on Pat McAfee, said the same thing, reiterated. And wouldn't you know what? They did not lose another game in the regular season after that. They did run the table. They, they after this really painful six week stretch of three wins and three losses after that they never failed to pull out a win until the nfc championship game and would you believe this was matt lafleur's first ever overtime game as a head coach yeah that's uh one of those statistics you don't see coming but uh okay so he's zero and one in (laughs) overtime what can you do hopefully that uh if it comes to another game next year that changes but uh yeah, you know, this this was a turning point because, you know, the thing I remember after this game was thinking, hell, the fans seem a lot more upset about this than the team. But I think the team saw things that the fans didn't necessarily see. And this game, in some ways, helped them gain confidence rather than lose it. It was interesting. You know, a win is a win. But the Jaguars win was very depressing. And... I commend the locker room. I commend Rogers and veterans like Mercedes Lewis. And I don't even know. Cause obviously we, you know, we're not in the locker room. We don't know who stepped up and said something and inspired guys, but I commend the locker room for recognizing that when you have an experience like that Jaguars game, when you have a, a failure like that, you choose how to respond and the team clearly chose to hold themselves accountable and to improve. And although it did not result in a win the following week against a much tougher team, it was evident in the play of everybody 
and in their morale and their effort that they were serious, that they were all in at this time. They were going to go in and win it all. And they, they carried the team through some really tough opponents. I'm really excited for when we get to talk about the Tennessee Titans game. Cause obviously that was my favorite game of the whole year, mm-hmm. man, the AFC South, what a gamut we had to run <laughs> this year. This was a, this was a heck of a schedule. It was, but the team found a way they got the job done and that was a good thing. And o- overall, uh, like I said, this indie game, a turning point in the season, but that is something that we're going to pick up next week when we continue our look back at the 2020 campaign. All right. It's debate time. First, you know, we got to look back at uh, last week's poll and, you know, you gave me the opportunity to pick who did I want to uh, uh, argue for as the best draft pick by Goody after Jair Alexander. And I was really excited about my answer of Darnell Savage. And wouldn't you know it? 88% of folks agreed with you. It was Elton <laughs> Jenkins. I, I got the slimmest margin of, of votes. I got to redeem myself this week. All and right. We have an inter- interesting debate topic. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this one. Offseason is coming up. There's a lot of holes on this roster. But what's the single most important position that Goody and LaFleur have to address this year? Yeah, that's uh, it's a darn good question. And uh, I point to cornerback when I look at this question. To me, uh, obviously, if Kevin King is not back, you have Jair Alexander, one of the best cover corners in the league, but you don't have a great cornerback opposite him. I think Josh Jackson may be useful in some way. But that doesn't mean that he should be the starting number two corner. Uh, Same with Chandon Sullivan. I like him as a dime back. I like him as a nickel back. I think he still has the potential to get better. But he's not going to be your number two cornerback. So the way I'm looking at it right now, pass defense so vital in this modern NFL. You've got to get a CB2 in there. I think they draft one in either the first or second round, and they probably add a free agent as well. Very important position, no doubt. There's another position that I think is much more critical to our success, and it's not something that we have to worry about very often, being Packer fans. But our offensive line is all of a sudden really thin. David Bakhtiari tore his ACL it's looking like potentially he might not be back until October or later, meaning we're going to have to start the season maybe without our all-pro left tackle. So Rick Wagner is gone. You got Billy Turner. You got Elton Jenkins as a guy you could slide over to tackle, although it's easily been his worst position along the offensive line. He's... He's done very good at guard. Uh, he has played center in college. He was he was much better as a center than as a guard, but he's been an elite guard. Uh, you know, but Corey Lindsley is going to be gone. 
So if you do move Elton to tackle, which is obviously an extremely important position, you're taking Elton and putting him to a position where he historically has been much worse at. And, you know, that interior is now missing its best player. You're you're you don't have Elton there. Corey Lindsay will be gone. I mean, Corey said that his agent has not even heard from the Packers yet. They haven't even talked at all about a an extension. And Corey actually went on Sirius XM radio today and said, basically, yeah, it looks like I'm going to be playing for another team this year. You got Lucas Patrick. You got a handful of sixth round picks who are all mostly best suited to play guard, but who really weren't that great. I mean, even, you know, John Runyon had a really good first game. And then after that, I uh, hate to say it, you know, and yeah, he was a rookie. Yeah, he's going to have time to keep developing. But right now, I would not make him a starter. Offensive line to me is scary. I I would love to see Rick Wagner maybe come back, you know, at a, at a discount. Uh, Jared Valdir, if he doesn't retire, is a guy that we could maybe call on. But, you know, he's has not played a lot of snaps in the last couple of years. Yash Nijman is a guy we've been developing for a very long time, has barely played at all. Maybe this is when he can step up. But right now, it's kind of Billy Turner and nobody to fill two tackle spots. And, I mean, if you look at all the tackles we had on our roster last year, you could argue that Billy Turner was our fourth best tackle. So, <laughs> to me, I'm just, I'm scared. I, I Tackle is, look... Aaron Rodgers' numbers when he is in a clean pocket versus where, when he's under pressure are night and day. In 2020, he had uh, nearly a perfect grade when he wasn't under pressure, when he's in a clean pocket. And his, his, his PFF grade was about a 75 when he was under pressure. Obviously, still, he's very good, but you got to keep him upright. And he was hardly under pressure at all in 2020. And especially at his age, you cannot afford an injury to Aaron Rodgers. This this team is going to be in so much trouble if Rodgers has to miss time and Bakhtiari is missing time and you've got other issues along the roster. If you can keep Aaron Rodgers upright and protected, a lot of other issues with the whole team take care of themselves. To me, keeping Aaron Rodgers upright and allowing A.J. Dillon and whoever else is at running back to have lanes that they can actually run through. My gosh, the running is so important to this team. We have to solve the tackle issue. We need a left tackle when Bakhtiari is not there. We need a right tackle or a right guard, you know, wherever uh, Billy Turner is not going to play. And we got to find uh, an answer at center or at left guard, wherever Elton Jenkins doesn't play. So I'm looking at a bunch of positions on the offensive line that need to be filled. And a, a bunch of, you know, sorry, but kind of riff-raffy rook, rookies and and guys who have never really been able to get meaningful reps anywhere uh, as our answer on the on the roster right now. Yeah, I, I have concerns along the offensive line. I just think the depth and versatility that we have there make it a slightly less urgent situation than we're at right now at cornerback. But you know what? Both of those, to me, are in the top three positions of need that we have to address this offseason. Well, it's time for you fans to weigh in. Head on over to Twitter. We're going to post a poll on our profiles at the top right there. 
You can go check us out at JJ Leahy, L-A-H-E-Y, or at Gil Packers. We're both going to post the poll. We want you to weigh in. Do you think offensive line, especially tackle, or cornerback is the biggest need for the Packers this offseason? Weigh in, and we'll get back to you next week and let you know who won. Alrighty, that does it for this week. We'll be right back here next week. Follow us on Twitter at Gil Packers and at JJ Leahy to stay up to date on all things Packers or to ask us questions, or you can email us at asknohuddle at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to Packers Talk on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks to PackersTalk.com for powering our show, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Go Pack Go! Go Pack Go! You are listening to Packers Talk Radio Network. Packers Talk. Not